Hello, I'm Paul Scott, and today I'm joined by Lisa Montague, the CEO of Sanderson Design Group, ticker SDG. So welcome, Lisa. Great to talk to you. Thank you, Paul. A quick disclaimer as well on this. Uh, I'm currently not holding shares in SDG. Um, I'm not charging a fee for this. I should disclose that it is on my watch list, so I'm looking to buy back in at some point when I've got some money. Um, and we're not giving, I'm not giving financial advice or any kind of recommendation. It's just an independent uh, uh, interview for uh, general information purposes. Usual question to start with then, Lisa, if you could. Uh, j- just a general overview of the business, please. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. Um, well, so Samson Design Group designs and makes interior printed fabrics and wall co- coverings predominantly. So we're about two-thirds, one-third brands to manufacturing in terms of the volume. Um, we have seven consumer brands, as we call them, um, and two factories um, within that. So our turnover is um, in the order of, well, last year, of course, reported was $112 million. Um, Of that, as I mentioned, two-thirds, so about 89 was brands. Within that, the split of brand product sales, 84, and just a bit more than five in licensing income, which I'm sure we'll touch on later, mm-hmm. um, and 42 million of manufacturing, which is more or less 50-50. It's a bit more than that, 45% more or less made for the group brands and the rest, 55% third party. Um, and then we have heritage brands and modern brands. So heritage brands include Morris & Co., um, Sanderson and Zoffany, and the modern brands include Harlequin, Clark & Clark, and Scion. And our main markets are the UK, where we're quite dominant, about 52% domestic and 48% export, of which the main focus is the US and growing. Great. And now you joined in April 2019, and I remember it well. I've been covering, as it was, Walker Green Bank. Obviously, you changed the name to Sanderson, which makes sense. That's your, your most recognizable brand, I do, uh, perhaps. Um, now, you started with a clear turnaround plan. Now, that's obviously been disrupted with COVID, which started within a year of you joining. Um, but I've been impressed with the turnaround, which is why I invited you to, to, to talk to me. So can you explain what you've done and plan to do uh, with your turnaround plan? Um, yes, absolutely. It's, um, I, w- I wouldn't say it was disrupted so much as, as, as probably we've resequenced some things. Um, during, clearly we had a couple of pandemic years and we're not quite in a stable environment now. Um, but if you look back to 2020 results, just to just to put it very simplistically, the top line is more or less the same. So it was 111, it's 112. Um, Sorry, Lisa, just to, just to interject, when you say 2020, do you mean calendar or do you mean January year end? Which would be January, 29... year, January year end, so the year that right. I started. Right, got it. Thanks. We were part way through, so I think if we take that as a sort of baseline, yeah. um, FY20, as we call it, was... And it's very irritating having that January year end, don't you? <laughs> but anyway, that's how it is. I haven't changed that yet. Um, <laughs> we had a turnover of 111.5 million, and it's now 112. So very similar top line. The difference that you can see, I think, in the shape of the business is if you look at the adjusted underlying profit before tax that we measure. And that was in FY20, 7.4 on 111.5. And in 2022, FY 
it was 12.5%. So moving up from 65 to 11% um, adjusted underlying. And then the EBITDA has built back as well to about 15%. So back to what was probably a bumpy year of 2018 when Clark & Clark was consolidated for the first time for a full year. So how did we do it, I guess, is really your question. Um, yeah. And I think that's really through focus, focus on a few things. Um, we set out a strategy, and as you said, really, in spite of headwinds in the market, and they have been many and various, let's face mm. it, um, we've stuck to the strategy. We've reported on the milestones that we set out way back in October 2019, and we've made sort of underlying progress, which may have gone you know, a bit faster in some areas and, and taken a little bit longer in others because of market fluctuations. But, you know, I think that's really important about a strategy is that once you set it out, you keep the end in mind. And how we get there might include tactical shifts depending on the direction of the winds. So core markets, you know, we said focus on core markets, recover the UK and the reputation, because I don't think we had a great reputation. That was what was coming across to me, was the um, the, the the customers in the UK, and we have you know, around 6,000 customers in the UK, a lot of small customers uh, with retail premises on the high street or independent designers, and, and they've There'd been a bit of flip-flopping, and I think they were all a bit confused as to what the direction and, and of the company was. So we've worked really hard on re-establishing ourselves as a great partner um, in the UK, which is our core market, um, and then grow the US. Okay. The US, we are under-indexed, um, and we can come back to that. Core products, fabric and wallpaper. We own the textiles mill. We own the wallpaper factory. Let's sort of, if you like, Stick to the knitting of what we're good at. Mm. Let's, because there was Cushion Gate when I started. <laughs> Sorry, Cushion Gate. Cushion Gate. Oh, we I've got to hear more about that. What was, was that? A, it was a finished goods strategy that meant we had quite a lot of finished goods in the <laughs> warehouse, um, and um, and and that's all gone now. Um, right. So you know, cushions are important, but we tend to find that a lot of people make their own, so they buy the fabric and they make their own, and some people do that under license, and, and that's all fine. We don't really need to do that as a core business. Um, and then the skew reduction was really quite pivotal, I would say, to the strategy, and we've come through holding up that top line, as I mentioned, but with close to half the product, so the SKU, so designs into colour options. Just just, so, just spell out what SKU means. Um, uh, it's a stock-keeping unit, you know, is what it actually stands for. But it so really, a product line. It, it, means, it really means a design, a product in a colourway. Oh. So, um, so we might have three colours, that's three SKUs of one design. Yeah. So we had 20,000 options in the portfolio of live SKUs available in the market of fabric and wallpaper core products. And we've reduced that to 12,000. Now, when we set out to reduce it, honestly, we didn't know if 12,000 was the right number or not, but we knew 20,000 was too many. Yeah. <laughs> so, so we've got to 12, and I think the latest thinking on that is that 11,000 is probably the right number. But I can explain why um, later on if you, if you want to explore that. Okay. Um, and then there was a portfolio of brands there was, at the time, a concept called Style Library, which you may remember, 
which seemed flawed to me from the outside, but when we got inside, we realized it definitely was. And it was, if you like, masking the strength of these individual brands. So we stripped that back and explored each brand. What are its characteristics? What's its place in the market? What's its positioning? Who is the audience? On what channels do they want to receive the information? And, and that was really important. So each brand now has a very defined place in the world and, um, and are focused on their own market. Um, and not just, you know, if you put an umbrella brand over something, it all has a tendency to become a bit vanilla. It was diluted, probably to put it politely. Mm. So turning up those brands was really important. And then, of course, once you've tuned up the brands, you kind of need a marketing budget to, to tell everybody about them and to create the story and get it out into the market. There wasn't a lot of discretionary spend sloshing around at the time. So we hired a marketing director which there wasn't, interestingly, in a brand-driven business. That role didn't exist at the time. So we created a new role, and we challenged the person with a create-your-own-pay-as-you-go budget by creating savings in other areas. And that was quite successful, so we created a marketing budget to support these brands. The other thing was that in the last 10 years, as far as I could see, there had been next to none... Um, or very little investment in the factories to enhance productivity. You might remember the stories of the fire, the flood. Yeah. Yeah. And then we needed to bring the people with us on this journey. Um, so develop a culture, really, of teamwork and support to stop things when things are tight. You know, often you get division and silos developing. So there was quite a lot to do, but it was very focused on core markets, core products, reduce the portfolio, put the investment where it's going to work, and bring the people with you. Yeah, so it all sounds like common sense stuff, but it's not easy to do very often in a, a long-established business, is it? No, it doesn't sound like rocket science at all. Um, and, um, and, you know, and it's not really in terms of sort of brand 101 and, and you know, how to make a business more efficient. Um, but, you know, as you say, it, it, if it was that, you know, it's, 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 um, it's not always as, as easy as it sounds. It depends on the set of circumstances. But I think, you know, we've, we've been in many ways lucky, and I don't mind crediting good fortune. I hired a really great leadership team. Um, we all went into the pandemic together, rolling up our sleeves, um, furloughing 500 people, and, and we had to come together and become a team because it was really a collection of experts that had joined the business to um, enhance the team that was there. So we have Claire, though, who's design director, who's been in the business 26 years and seen all the ups and downs. Carla, the HR, who's been in the business six years now, so really had a good grip on what needed to be done culturally. Um, and so that really helped. Mm. Okay, so moving on then to the recent interim results. Now, these uh, struck me as surprisingly solid in the current 
difficult environment. Um, now, it seemed to be, I read through them again last night, and by the way, readers, uh, listeners rather, do have a look at the uh, Investor Relations website for Sanderson. There's, there's a really uh, good webinar and slides presentation video on there that uh, I listened to first thing this morning, very informative. So licensing and your uh, Morrison Co. brand seem to be the positive standouts in the interims, but other, other brands also declines in sales. So can you talk us through this? Yeah, of course. I mean, <coughs> solid. <laughs> solid would be really disappointing at this stage, three years into a new strategy, <laughs> and with a bit of a turnaround, really, if we were in a stable environment. But solid seems to be quite well perceived at the moment in these turbulent times. Yeah. Um, and certainly it seems that the market is rewarding us for that, which seems slightly perverse to me since we've been out a couple of times with great results and got no no response from the market and here we are sort of solid and, and everybody thinks that's better than expected. <laughs> but the share price has halved in the last year. That's that's maybe why, isn't it? That yeah, well it's just, everybody's expecting calamitous results and you come out with something pretty decent. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Well you know, we're still we're still um, you know, nowhere near where we should be, but we're, but we'll get there. We'll get there. So um, yeah, markets have been difficult, and I think rather than by brand, it's probably worth looking by market because that might tell a, a, a deeper story. Um, so the USA by region has delivered growth. UK is held up, and Europe's very difficult, and rest of the world too. Um, by brand, Morris traction continues. So Morris has been growing as a brand, double digit since before I started. I can't take all the credit for that. But, you know, like we put bestsellers in the window in a boutique. Um, Morris was the one we said, well, if it has natural traction, let's make sure that our marketing activity goes there first because it's good to amplify and boost something that's already working. And Morris delivered in this first half 54% growth in the U.S. and 21% in the U.K., so given that the UK market was difficult and flat, that was exceptional performance, which, as you rightly say, um, suggests, and is indeed the case, it's, it's all there in black and white, that the other brands were more challenged. And I'd say especially the bigger ones and the more modern brands, Harlequin and Clark and & Clark. Now, that's because also UK retail has, has been softer. Um, Q1 was stronger and then Q2, as soon as we started with the budget and the economic and uh, Ukraine invaded, yeah, everything became more difficult on the UK high street. Um, and I think it's fair to say that those bigger brands that have got broader distribution and deeper distribution in the UK and Ireland, which is also affected, um, have felt it first. Mm. Then okay. if you look by customer, um, our top customers, are all growing. So if we look at our, you know, John Lewis is a big customer for us, performing very well with our brands, um, and particularly Harlequin with the colour story, which they're really supporting. Harlequin has classically been an important brand for John Lewis, and John Lewis, Harlequin's biggest customer. Um, and then the second biggest customer with Harlequin is also Brewers in the UK, the decorator stores who privately um, owned, also own Wallpaper Direct, which is the global um, wallpaper online business and they have produced their own edit of Harlequin which just went to market in September so that's that's quite strong as well so there are things underlying there where there are good results and, and more challenging ones 
um, different by brand and by market. And Clark and Clark has got new relationships with some of the department stores that will show great traction for the future, like they're working with Next now and John Lewis, where actually Clark and Clark wasn't really in that portfolio very strongly at all previously. Um, and we're also going to be launching wallpaper for Clark and Clark. Okay. Um, let's talk a bit about licensing as well, because, um, I mean, my perception is always that licensing revenue is almost pure profit. So um, it seems a valuable revenue and profit stream. So how does this work? And in particular, how is the IP protected? So couldn't people just copy your design? Um, well, it's definitely an important stream. And you're right, it comes through to 100% to the bottom mm. line. So um, we license the design, we do the design work often, and uh, we earn a royalty depending, and the rates vary depending on whether it's a retail or a wholesale um, kind of agreement and how much of the design we're doing. Some um, of those, well, most have a minimum guarantee attached to them, which is, uh, you know, there's a business plan and then a small amount of that is taken as an upfront minimum guarantee, which thanks to our accounting standards, um, means that we have to account for it up front. And so in the pack, when you see it, we've tried to demystify all of that and just be very clear on what's accelerated income and what is um, core product and collaboration. So splitting it like that, core product would be things like bedding that we've just re-signed another three years with our main partner, Bedeck. Obviously, that only happens every three years, so that could make it lumpy, um, but it unwinds <coughs> over that period. Yeah, and I have a look at their website, actually, and the product is, um, I would say, a lot more affordable uh, than some of your sort of own brands, if you like, which are really kind of quite super luxury type thing. Well, not super luxury, but luxury, aren't they? Is that, is that right? Um, yeah, I mean, the bedding <coughs> tends to sell through the department store network, which, is, of course, itself challenged in the UK right now. So, um, Debenhams and House of Fraser would have been important customers. I think John Lewis is still the main customer um, for Bedeck, and they're retailing directly as well. Um, and we've also got the bedding presented in Harrods now on the on the third floor, both Zoffany Bedding in their own um, area and um, Morris within the new sort of shopping shop on the third floor. So yeah, the power of the brand gives us that licensing potential that can really grow in line with the core products and in some brands it could accelerate and on slide 31 in the in the pack there's a new disclosure where I've sort of grossed up what that means in terms of retail equivalent. I saw that it yeah. goes up to 100 million actually goes up to 300 million at retail my, level doesn't it? It's my new favorite slide Paul. I like um, it too. <laughs> <laughs> and hopefully yeah the point of it really is to show why Scion works for instance as a small brand because um, if you look at the trade sales, you might think it's so small, why are they bothering? Yes. But actually, when you see the licensing power of that brand, and it's quite driven by the characters um, and some of the retail partnerships, then you know it all falls into shape, so to speak. And it also, I think, draws out what potentially could be the potential for other brands. So Clark & Clark, for instance, which is the biggest volume, but it's all trade, doesn't have licensing. We've just licensed for the first time rugs, with a company called Asiatic, and they launched last week, for instance. So there's, um, you know, there's lots of mileage to go. So if you look at the 2025 new milestones, there's a lot in there about licensing, licensing new products, licensing more for the different brands, licensing different territories. 
Um, and on the IP point, mm. and clearly, you know, we protect the IP. We have design copyright. And um, and if people did just copy them, um, we would be uh, following that up. So how does design, so excuse my ignorance, I could Google this, but how does d design copyright, um, how long does that last? And uh, it, it, there's patents or, or any sort of yes, 20 so years or so, aren't there? But your Morris designs are, what, 100 years old or nearly in some cases? Yeah, 160 they go back to, 160 wow. years we celebrated, both Morris and Sanderson actually. Um, so we own the full Sanderson archive and therefore there is no um, sort of, other archives out there. With Morris, it's a slightly different story and quite particular because many of the museums and cultural institutions um, do hold parts of the Morris archive, and, and we ourselves have you know, a reasonably small part of it, although it's quite an important sort of lifestyle part. Um, having said that, of course, museums and public institutions you know, don't really have the manufacturing, nobody else has the manufacturing capability, and so we turn it into, we can turn it into fabric and wallpaper. Um, so what we do is we permanently, we don't design new designs for Morris, clearly. We take the archive designs, and they could be recolored or rescaled, and then, of course, that design copyright effectively um, restarts. Mm. Okay. Now, we've got so many questions to get to. I might amalgamate some of these into more general points. Um, so, with your products, how much fashion risk is there, or do you have recurring sales from bestsellers? And, and also, could you talk about your customers? Who are the end customers, and how would they be impacted by a downturn? Um, yes, of course. So, we are not, as, as we've just said, some of those designs last for hundreds of years. So, it really isn't... Um, it's a very different business in terms of we have some chart toppers that have been there for decades, um, but they have been potentially redrawn or recolored to keep them fresh. So we produced on some 160 collection last year to celebrate the anniversary. We've had collaborations with Morris Designs, with Ben Pentreef. We've launched Simply Morris, where we've cleaned up the backgrounds to keep those designs um, going. And what we do see is that Fashion trends can come through licensing, maybe, which is why we split core and collaboration. Collaboration can be um, things like the H&M or Next tend to be apparel-driven, and they do tend to be more in and out, quite short-term. Um, and that is the sort of the fashion element, but you see it in the licensing rather than the core activity. Um, appetite for colour is interesting, and those tend to be sort of 30-year cycles of design periods. So we've had minimalism of the 80s and the 90s that brought us very neutral palettes. Now we're seeing very definitely a return to colour, print and texture coming through culturally. And you could say that might have been a historic 30-year period, even with shortened attention spans. We probably look at 20 years. And you could say that we might be five years into it because Gucci and Alessandro Michele put all this colour and maximalism on the runway um, all the way back in 2015, actually. So it's taken a while to reach us in home decorating. And then, of course, you know, if you assume that people decorate their houses on average every 10 years, which is the statistic that we hear banded around, try and prove it and get evidence of these things is difficult. Um, you know, we should be in at least, I'll take the next 10, 15, 20 years, that's fine. Yeah. Well, it's interesting, isn't it? I love that word maximalism as well. I saw that in one of your RNSs and I thought, oh, I like that. Um, and it, it, we've seen a similar thing with um, uh, pottery and uh, uh, 
kitchenware, haven't we? And it was all white, wasn't it, for 15, 20 years or whatever. Now patterns and colours are all coming back. Yeah, um, I think everywhere you look, you know, every art exhibition, every store, every retail store, um, it, it's there all around us. When we see what people are wearing, gone are the days of the black, white, beige Armani. Um, mm. You know, we're, we're into this sort of, you know, colourful and print. And appetites, tastes just change. And, and, and they are longer cycles, though, um, is what we're anticipating. And then in terms of who our customers are, we're a wholesale business. You know, we are literally you know, 98% trade. And our customers, and we take all the stock risk, which is why you see our inventory um, as, a, as a quite a big number in terms of working capital. Um, so everything that we sell is fully sold through, and it's going either through a retailer, like somebody going into John Lewis and ordering through them, but they place that order with us for cut-length fabric or wallpaper or paint, um, or an interior designer who will be working on a project and coming to us um, directly. So they, they're all trade customers, and there are many thousands of them. Um, we do have a trade hub. We have a trade website through which people interact, and that gives them a good service. It gives them visibility of price and stocking levels um, so that when they are promising a customer for a project, they know that we'll be able to deliver that. Yeah, I mean, your gross margin of 65 or 66%, it, that's extremely high for a wholesale business, isn't it? Because you haven't got any of the, uh, the costs of running a network of, of stores. So um, that seems to me a very attractive feature of the business. You've got pricing power. Um, so let's talk about that. Inflation, obviously the big topic of the, of the day. Costs are rising and pricing power. Are you able to manage the costs and are you passing them on to customers? Well, so far, um, the brands have absorbed the annual increase of last year, um, which was a bit higher than prior years. So, And these go through in February, is that right, your, your annual rises? Yeah, yeah, they do. They, they, yeah. You know, the beginning of our new financial year and the beginning of the sort of spring season. So historically, um, there was about 5% on average um, accepted industry annual pay increase, uh, uh, not pay increase, sorry, price increase. Um, yeah. And last year, in our brands, we passed through 9%. But that was also not the same across every brand. So Morris & Co., we had aligned the pricing um, because over the years, the pricing architecture has got a bit out of kilter. So two things that looked like the same value were not necessarily you know, out there at the same price. And, and it's important that we, as long as we keep the price value um, aligned and considered to be fair, then we can, we believe, continue to pass through the cost increases because customers... Trade and consumer alike do understand the current pressures, um, mm -hmm. and they understand that as long as the product seems value in the eye of the consumer, and that's the most important thing. So, so far, um, we're confident that, that that's all in good order. Um, I'm sure it depends how long and deep this situation is. Um, at some point, that, that may be um, an issue, but so far, we're anticipating next year... Um, of the standard increase or possibly a little bit more in February. We need to see how that comes through now. Um, we have been hit with, obviously, quite significantly increased energy costs, although the government's intervention is helping through to um, the first half of next year, or spring at least, I think it's April, isn't it? And then mm -hmm. if that unwinds, that will be a significant increase for us. Um, gas we have under contract until 
23 October, so that's great. Yeah, and presumably manufacturing fabrics. I mean, I don't know. It's, it's all done with digital printing, I guess, but it must use a fair bit of energy, doesn't it? It's the steam in fabric, so um, it, rather than the printing, that's the issue. So, um, you know, we, it needs to be steamed in textiles and um, and. Gas- what does that do? Does that sort of lock in the colour then, or something? Yeah, and and it, and it finishes the the, the fabric. So, um, so that that's where the the textiles um, impact is. But there's lots of things we can do to mitigate it, and are doing. So, for instance. Any processes that include steam, we're reducing the days that we um, we run the big boiler, if you like. Um, we are um, going ahead, pressing ahead with solar panels onto the roofs. Um, we are um, implementing LED lighting across all of the sites. <coughs> the problem at the moment, of course, is getting hold of the kit. So we've signed mm. off the capex, but actually spending it is far more challenging. Um, you know, we've got the new ERP system going into Standfast only because that was an old, creaky system. Um, but, of course, we need to Wi-Fi the whole factory and getting hold of some of those component parts is quite challenging at the moment. Um, but we are pressing ahead with those investments because they're really necessary to make sure that the future health of the business is secured. And, of course, the payback on all these energy-reducing measures now is, is, is very attractive. Yeah, I mean, in the small caps universe, I cover about 500 stocks sort of superficially, and it's surprising how many are now saying the same thing, you know, that, that the the payback, I think I saw someone, one, one company say the payback on solar panels on their factory roof is about four and a half years or something, so it's a no-brainer if you can get the kit. Yeah, um, exactly. I mean, talk about supply chain more generally. Um, have you had any issues with... Um, your core raw materials and has Brexit disrupted or helped in any way? Um, yeah, yeah. Bre- Brexit was um, Bre- Brexit was very exciting last year, and the merry dance of Brexit and COVID together was was somewhat disrupting. Um, it it's had two different, very distinct effects on our business. Um, it's always like this, isn't it? Swings and roundabouts. We have um, at Stanfast in particular benefited due to the tariffs and duties applied to textiles going in and out of Europe and beyond. Um, benefited? Benefited. Because right. um, there's a cost benefit to all of our competition in the UK to produce textiles in the UK rather than bringing them in where they attract tariffs and duties going in and out. So mm. if, um, if, our, if, our, you know, if a company is importing from Europe or beyond, and re-exporting into Europe, it's 8% either way. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. And paper doesn't attract the same tariff. There's no tariffs or duties on the paper substrate, and therefore ANSTI doesn't have the same advantage per se. Um, that's your other factory. Yes, ANSTI yeah. is the wallpaper factory, and Stanfast is the textiles factory. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the brands business into Europe has become much more difficult, which you can see in the numbers. Um, Northern Europe clearly impacted by Russia and the surrounding regions, and Southern Europe you see in the rest of the world numbers, and that's really due to sort of economic pressures in Spain, Italy. We also closed our French subsidiary, which you might have seen we announced at the end of last year, Um, and of course that was impacted first and is now picking up, funnily enough, um, running it directly from here. 
Oh, okay. So, yeah, so you didn't lose the actual French business as such, the, the sales. You just managed them from the UK now. Yeah, we've changed the way we're servicing it. Oh, okay. Oh, I didn't pick that up. So, um, now let's move on to your balance sheet next. Now, this is um, just a thing of beauty. I love strong balance sheets. Mm-hmm. It's one of the main things I do at the, the Small Cap Value Reports on Stockopedia, uh, which is more important than ever, of course, now, giving interest rates are rising, economies are slowing and everything. So your balance sheet's great. I mean, it's terrific. It give, that obviously gives great stability to the business because nobody has to worry about doing fundraisers, even in a downturn. It makes the investment quite safe, I think. But I would say there's excess capital on the balance sheet. So to me, share, share buybacks, surely, at the current valuation make a lot of sense. And acquisitions, I mean, I flagged up to you uh, before this interview that I thought Port Merion, for example, would make a lovely fit with its heritage brands and, you know, licensing partners for launching tableware and so on. So what's your reaction to that? Um, yeah, we do work with Port Marion, actually. Well, oh. um, it's great to have a strong balance sheet, you know, as, as you say, and, and it gives us some degree of comfort. And, of course, we have um, you know, an unused facility uh, at the moment with Barclays for about $12.5 million. Um, What we were looking at is, is, and I think you were going to come on to it, is... In terms of, don't forget, we have two defined benefit pension schemes. Mm. Um, so earlier in the year, we were starting to think about that as probably the best and first use of any excess capital, as you say. Um, however, that was just sort of before um, Putin invaded Ukraine, and we decided then as a board that we were far more comfortable um, Sitting on a good cash balance for the rest of this year and having a look how you know how things turn out, yeah, um, and giving everybody comfort that um, that we have that, and, and I think that that was a prudent thing to do. Um, now, obviously, if interesting projects come to market, we would have to have a look at them, um, but we're not out there pursuing any kind of um, acquisition strategy at the moment. You know, you, I notably took it off the strategy um, when I started because there's so much else we need to do. It doesn't mean to say that there aren't inorganic growth opportunities that would be attractive at some point. Yeah, I didn't want to take the focus of, of Mike and myself off the, you know, the development we need to do internally and the self-help measures that are really important to get through so that we have a good, strong platform to be able to look at all of those things in the future. Yeah, that makes sense. And often I find with a lot of companies, it's often good to have a chairman with tons and tons of acquisition experience and contacts to maybe look at that side of things and to bring the best idea to the CEO, leaving the CEO free to run the business. Um, it would be, it, it would be, we have a great board, um, I, I think, a really good board composition and lots of experience around the table. Um, and, yeah, Dame Diane Thompson's chairman yeah, has, has got lots of interest and, uh, and public profile and, uh, and brings lots of ideas into us. So yeah, we've, we're working very well together, I would say, as a board. I hope everybody agrees with that. Yeah, great. <laughs> and, um, and in time, it, it would be nice to look at you know, some, some inorganic opportunities, if you like, um, but we've hmm. still got, you know, we haven't made progress on the organic front because of all these things going on. So we've streamlined the business, but we really would like to see some top-line growth fueling it um, before we start to look left or right and become distracted. 
Yeah, no, that's a good point. No, actually, that brings us on nicely to um, outlook and expansion opportunities. So I've looked back at the, I've followed uh, the company for many, many years, and looking back historically, I mean, it hasn't really changed that much in size and shape over a long period of time. And it got through the 2008 recession very, very well, remained profitable, um, and bounced back quickly. Um, and you've just confirmed full year expectations for FY uh, January 2023, so that's all good, um, with the obvious cautionary statement about macro factors. Um, but where do you see, uh, I know you've talked about America, so have you got a bigger picture for, for larger expansion, really sort of moving it on to the next level growth-wise? It sounds like you do. Um, <laughs> Yes, I think America is the big opportunity. I mentioned we were under-indexed, and I think by any measure... Um, under-indexed? Sorry, how do you mean? Well, America has represented... So in 35 years of having a subsidiary, the subsidiary has not sold more than around $12 million into the U.S. market, mm. um, which is you know, small. It's a huge... Scratching the surface, isn't it, of a huge Absolutely. market? And yeah. never represented more than, um, you know... 10 to 20 percent, 20 percent max of the of the total um, you know, market revenues, and for most of the competition, in fact, all of them um, that you could think of, America represents probably two thirds of their sales. So we are oh. far better represented in the UK and absolutely not touching the surface in mm. the US. Now, in it, when we've looked at that, when I when I started, um, it it came down to distribution network. So our network was very thin, if you like, and um, and others much more significant and covering the territory. And of course, it's a big territory, and it's structured differently because um, it all all the business goes through interior designers rather than retailers. So they tend to be, you know, they could be home based, they may have a showroom, but you need to go and see those people and, and go to them. They're not going to fly to New York to find out what your latest design is necessarily. So we've now spent the last year or so, and you could see last year in the numbers that uh, the U.S. grew by 42% um, in the last full year, and that was through getting the network out in terms of distribution network with more showrooms, more agents. They're all um, commission-driven. We work with local partners and road reps, so to really cover the territory. I think we have a couple of vacancies still. Um, but those are really important. And the regions that are most important to get penetration are the south. So Atlanta is a very important showroom and covers the Carolinas and Tennessee, which is actually the state that, <laughs> the state that absorbs most in terms of interior um, furnishing. Um, unbelievably, it's not the tri-state. And then um, Texas and Florida are very important. Yeah. So I do think for the next... Five years, you know, we've we've broadly got the distribution now. We've broadly got the right product. There might be some finessing to do around some product, um, such as outdoor performance fabrics are really important in the U.S. Um, so that you can do indoor outdoor living in those in those wonderful beach and warm environments. Um, and then and then we need to really probably tune up a little bit of marketing, which of course is challenging. Um, finding some discretionary dollars in this environment. But as you said, yeah, we do have it if that's how we want to use it. So we'll look at some real targeted small investments next year to measure the return on those, focused on you know, perhaps Harlequin in 
Houston and Dallas, for instance, or you know, a particular brand in Florida. And we have a new marketing director who has got a lot of digital and customer experience um, background who who really looks at data-driven decisions. And, and that's marvelous when you have to sort of test and learn in the U.S. because it's it's easy to um, to spend a lot of money um, mm. and we... You know, we need to do it in a very targeted approach. So I think that's the most exciting. And I really want to make sure we crack that um, market really before we move on to other things. Now, when we then look, Japan is important for us licensing-wise. And so when we talk about licensing by 25, there's a lot to go for there. Um, we've done a lot of activity around Morris as a brand. So you can see Morris in America and licensing or our as we said, high margin areas. Um, Sanderson has a lot of opportunity, and we've just signed, I mean, we've announced two things quite differently. Um, Disney coming down the line with those... Oh, I Disney. saw that. Yeah, that yeah. looks fun. Yeah. 1930s original vintage designs. They are charming, and we're going to do <laughs> washed down, vintagey, um, so not too junior. Anybody could use it, wallpaper and fabric. And then the big opportunity there is, of course, Disney's other partnerships that might be interested in that, um, and we don't know what, what, where that could go um, yet. But then beyond that, looking at 2024, we see Sanderson as the vehicle that to really, you know, really promote and nurture and take forward in a more relevant way as our heritage brand that there's definitely traction in that brand and we haven't really turned it on yet. So the fashion collaboration with Giles Deacon that we announced is for 2024, and that long lead time is to give us time for new retail and licensing partnerships as well for that brand. Yeah, brilliant. I just I love your enthusiasm for the business. It's really uh, infectious. <laughs> and uh, you seem to have this nice balance of being commercial about things, but also enjoying the creative side. I mean, do you find creative people, uh, my background is in fashion, uh, ladies wear retailing, and the, the creatives were notoriously difficult and temperamental uh, to handle. Uh, do, do you do you have any sort of magic way of keeping them under under control and getting them to behave themselves? No, no, I don't want them under control. I want them fizzing with ideas. Um, Brilliant. I, I love working with creative people. I think yeah, um, yeah that partnership is really key. And um, you know, it, I'd also got a fashion leather goods background, as you might know. And and that, you know, it's 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 an absolute joy to work with creative talent. I think the yeah. best thing is that you know. We all acknowledge that I don't have any creative talent, but I really like working with them and running the business. And as long as we all do what we're good at, it works beautifully. Sounds great. Well, I've got a list of long of my arm of things I could ask you, Lisa, but we're out of time. And uh, this has been a real pleasure of chatting to you, and I hope we can do it again. Thank you very much, Paul. Of course we can do it again. I'd love to speak to you more. Excellent. Thanks again. So uh, we'll sign off then, and um, thanks to everyone for listening. Thank you. Bye, Lisa. Bye.